Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews donors, thought leaders, and professionals in the field of fundraising. Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand, original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. We're thrilled to feature the development debrief on Evertrue Studios Podcast Network. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. Today, it's mega gifts, crypto, ESG, and still an oh my. These topics are intimidating. You might not be sure where to start. Well, I'm hoping today will be the start for you hearing from CJ and Steve, a father-son duo who talk about fundraising from a financial background. They run a full-service fundraising consulting firm coming to the work with Roots in Finance. We talk about the importance of being conversant on a base level with donors when it comes to the market, currency, and financial planning. Trust me when I say, if I can do it, so can you. So let's learn about the ORs. As co-founder and managing partner of OR Group, Steve has facilitated the growth and evolution of the firm to its current position as a national leader in the nonprofit consulting sector. Steve is committed to enhancing philanthropy using innovative technologies and approaches developed in the business world to disrupt the established ways of working and encourage experimentation. In 1994, he founded Youth Inc., a nonprofit organization that helps NYC grassroots youth programs expand through fundraising, board placements, training, and direct grants, and led the organization for 20 years, during which time Youth Inc. partnered with 130 youth programs in NYC placed 140 executives on its program boards, and raised over $50 million. Steve's son, CJ, is responsible for a portfolio of work that includes client services, operations, business development, and partner relationship management. CJ has a broad background in fundraising and development, strategic planning, campaigns, and event management. CJ's background in finance provides him a strong foundation in analytics, metrics, and ROI. Before working at OR Group, CJ worked in institutional fixed income trading at Alliance Bernstein, where he was responsible for funds trading, account management, and reviewing analytical research. He also spent several years in municipal bond sales and trading at Oppenheimer & Co. Now let's get started. Hi, CJ. Hi, Steve. Welcome to The Debrief. Thank you, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Thank you for having us. Good. Well, it's always fun to talk with family who works together. You know, one of the things that's fun for me is that my dad is in the business and we compare notes all the time. So I was excited when I saw your firm and the family connections. So let's get started there. How did the OR group begin and and how has it grown to today? So I'll start that because I've been around for 30 years. So I was at a place called Goldman Sachs after maybe 12 years, 11, 12 years on Wall Street. And the firm started a charity, actually. It happened to be in Washington, D.C., a place that I had wanted to move to for a long time. Thought I'd end up at the SEC or someplace like that. So I decided to take two years off. I left the firm, came down here, and they said, oh, great. We're glad you're here. We have 25 employees and we have no money. So you are officially our fundraiser. And I said, well, that's great. Never done that before. 
but happy to give it a shot. And so I galloped back to Goldman Sachs and all the buddies I have on the street I actually met Paul Tudor Jones in this process, you know, the founder of Robinhood. Ah, and yes. he, yeah, in my first fundraising effort, he helped me literally raise $800,000 from all of his hedge fund buddies. And that launched a business. Uh, my wife joined me actually, because they asked us then to do a big gala event for this charity in DC. It was a mentoring charity, all about kids, all about, you know, the whole beginning of mentoring really. That was 30 years ago. No one really knew what mentoring was. Now it's a huge affair. And so we realized, you know, my wife, Carol, is a very talented producer. Um, we started working hand in hand. I was the fundraiser. She was the producer. So we started doing a lot of gales and stuff. And that became a business for, that we realized we could do with all kinds of charitable organizations. And it, so fast forward to today, 30 years later, you know, we're now a full service, national, global organization, uh, 70 to 80 employees given the day. And CJ, did you always kind of think that you would join the or group or was this a surprise to you in your professional experience? Definitely a surprise. I interned and all that great stuff in high school and in college. And I was a trader on finance for a few years, I think about four years. Uh, and I think it's at a good point in my career where like, hey, I'm either going to do this the rest of my life or uh, join an entrepreneurial firm and do something a little bit different and you know, make bigger of an impact. And I just remember how much fun I had working. Previously, we were called OAI when I interned and just the great group of folks that I worked with. And uh, that's what kind of brought me back. It's funny that we're still very close with like my intern coordinator, Amanda, is one of our vice presidents at, at our group. So it all kind of comes full circle and it's all about our, our people. And that's what attracted me back here. And uh, uh, we still have a lot of those folks here and stay connected with many of them. So it's still going on. CJ has been here for a decade now, I think, right, CJ? Um, yeah. Something like that. Myself, and yeah. He's been a tremendous driver of new business and building relationships at all levels of the firm. So, you know, we used to do it back in the day where it was only the senior people who would be out, you know, building relationships and everyone else would be support. So he came in with the idea that, no, 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 everybody should be out building relationships through the business, you know, uh, just logically and not, you know, selling. He and I believe very strongly, we don't really want to be selling anything anytime. We want to be great partners. We want to be really valuable consulting advice. So he's built a lot of that. And then lately he's been really on the bandwagon of retention, clients, and things like this that we were just talking about are part and parcel of that. And it ends up being, you know, long-term relationships. You talked about a couple of things that CJ has really brought to the table, which sounds exciting. And I totally agree that everyone should be building the business, but how else do you work together? Are you ever on projects together or is that pretty separate? All the time. We, get away from Steve the and I, <laughs> no, we, we have a really good relationship. It's actually a lot of fun. I've been working here for about 10 years and probably for the first five years, I was very much under Steve's wing, uh, learning, just soaking up everything, right? Um, on all projects with him, listening on the front lines of you know what's happening in the marketplace, just kind of following him. And um, over the years, uh, as I've learned, I've started to take on various other projects of my own. And now, ironically, you know, we've we've kind of all do our separate assignments, uh, but collaborate all the time, and we really enjoy it. We have fun. There are some fun issues that we definitely disagree on, and uh, you know we talk openly and, and transparently about those. But for most of the the day and most of our work, we really just have a lot of fun and enjoy working together. And you know we'll work eight hours together and then go uh, hang out with our families and and everything uh, on the weekends. And so 
you know, we're really embedded, you know, Catherine, we're, <laughs> we're, we're together 24 seven. And so you really got to like the person you work with if you're yeah. going to do that much time together. We decided we better live the personal embedded model in order to be able to translate that <laughs> Let's talk about mega gifts. This is a really exciting topic. As you said, trending it, we're seeing it in the news more and more. We saw it quite a bit in 2020 and 2021, which surprised people, but philanthropy goes on. Let's start with defining a mega gift. How do you define it? We usually define mega gifts as 10 million and up. We find that these are usually unrestricted and they are usually given to organizations that are solving urgent issues. Um, so people that have taken that giving style would be like Mackenzie Scott, Jack Dorsey, Gates Foundation, You've all, you're also seeing a lot of entities like Co-Impact, Audacious Project, Lever for Change, Big Bet Philanthropy. Um, some of these names might sound familiar, but taking a, a similar type of approach, kind of a more of a venture capital type of approach where they're solving urgent issues, they're giving unrestricted cash, and they are doing it in size. So that's, that's how we're defining it right now. There are two key generators of this phenomenon that's happening as we speak, this more well, well, we'll talk about a gift at the morning. <laughs> yeah, but there's so much wealth that's been created, you know, in the last decade or whatever. So in the last period of time, you know, stock market and all, a bunch of other sources, private equity and so forth. And then there's Gates and Buffett that got together with the Giving Pledge, and that created billionaire move to say, yeah. I don't really need to pass away with all these billions of dollars. Um, I should have a plan to give at least half of it away. So I think that's been a big generator of move in the direction of, you know what, we ought to be charitable today and start figuring out in our lifetime. And that's a big change. You know, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and so forth, you know, wanted to leave these very large institutional grants, either in the form of foundation or an ongoing charity. That, that's the way it was back in the day. And this is the current mode now. I was surprised when you said unrestricted. Would you say that's more in the nonprofit space? Just because I know so often when we look at eight and nine figure gifts in higher education, that is typically to I, name. Actually, I'll take that one because yeah. when CJ said that, I, I thought about that for a minute too. I think the kinds of gifts that you just talked about, CJ, you know, a lot of those, most of those, it seems, are unrestricted. I mean, Mackenzie Scott in particular, she's given right. a, $8 billion away that I think all of it's been unrestricted. She's picked the type of organizations, but it's been unrestricted, which is tremendous for these organizations because they can invest in technology. They can invest in a lot of the back office stuff, which is critical to make you know any business operate. However, traditionally they have been restricted gifts mostly because as you say, like in university settings, hospital settings, you know, which are the larger, more traditional areas where you give very large gifts, you know, in perpetuity and you know, put your name on things, legacy kind of gifts. Those are more typically restricted. But I think I would agree that the, there's a shift going on in, to some degree. So, of course, people are listening and they're thinking, well, how do we attract, how does this happen? And, you know, I've done some episodes on principal gifts, which in the higher ed space is typically defined as 10 million plus. But this, what we're talking about here is a little bit different. You've published some articles and in one of them, most recently, you outlined some necessary steps. So I'm just going to talk through some of them and then you can break it down for us. But you talked about the importance of leverage, having big plans, big vision, launching a campaign and implementing an initiative. 
So we'll talk about those, but what I want to start with is of the institutions that you work with, how many of them are already engaged in these things? I'm sort of curious about that. There's the before and then what you can do after. So on the before, we very much believe that what will attract major guests and give you the right infrastructure or story would be really to work on your case, to develop your big idea of why and what you could do. Why would you be qualified to accept a large gift and what you would do with it? And really getting that buttoned up and building a really strong case for support. We also believe that in the beginning parts of it, you really got to have a great uh, team on board um, to kind of conceptualize that idea but also do the appropriate prospecting and have the appropriate development team out there looking for this and, and hitting the ground and making sure that you're doing all the right uh, outreach. The last piece, you know, I mentioned the, the case and I mentioned the team, but the last piece is the access to prospects or trying to find the connectivity to prospects. So like not everybody knows McKenna Scott, not everyone knows Jack Dorsey, you're not everyone knows these folks, but it's the ability to figure out how to get there. So there's these great tools like a relationship science or other things like you can even use LinkedIn to figure out you know connectivity of how to get to these places. But um, what we always recommend is trying to find the connectivity to put the dots together to get to these types of sources. Um, and it just takes some time and some some hard work, and uh, you know you'll probably get rejected by ten, but one of those introductions will actually get you in the right place. Um, and then also just like a very Thing that might not be known, but you can always go to startsmallllc.org and you can submit a proposal to receive funding from Jack Dorsey. Uh, you can do it on a Google form. It might take you 10 minutes at most, uh, but any organization, no matter who you are, you can do that right now. He, he's very, if you look at his spreadsheet, he's pretty specific about what he and uh, Start Small funds. However, anybody has access to that. Um, but those are usually the three things we like to, to think about in order to attract these gifts. And then once you get the gift, there's also a whole variety of things you can do, and you touched on it, like a campaign. Uh, you can leverage it into larger gifts. Um, you can do a general fundraising plan at that time. You can do a new strategic plan. Um, there's a whole variety of things that you can do to continue the flow of money coming in. Um, what a lot of times happen is when you know, one major giver raises their hand, that starts to attract other major givers because they all want to be at the same table. Um, and then a lot of our clients that have received Mackenzie Scott's has been a domino effect into larger and, and more gifts. Um, so we've seen that kind of trend as well. Tell us about the case that's being revealed today. So this morning at 9 a.m. on the Today Show, it was revealed that our client, uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters National Office, received a Mackenzie Scott gift of $125 million, which we won't take any credit for it, but we have been working with the organization for a year to you know, work on such things as their messaging and as CJ said, their case statement and just sort of generally you know, bulking up, helping them as an embedded partner, bulk up their development efforts and their capabilities. I don't know what impact that had on Mackenzie Scott, uh, but you know, wow, what a terrific thing because you know, back, I was explaining my uh, origin of starting with this Goldman Sachs charity, mm -hmm. uh, which was really all about mentoring. Big Brothers Big Sisters is the Uber, you know, the national standard in mentoring. So for me personally, that was pretty special to hear because we spent a lot of time in the early days pioneering mentoring techniques and to see an organization like that that's been around forever to get uh, that kind of a commitment is really special. I mean, that will help yeah. so many kids and so many, you know, situations. 
it's really very, very impactful. I mean, this is just changing the face of philanthropy, these large gifts with very high quality organizations that are spending them properly, you know, spending the money properly and really have an impact. So I know sometimes people will apply, but was this just gifted? Like they were chosen? Cause I know that's the way Mackenzie Scott has done it sometimes where she just picks a bunch and. Well, they hired a firm to advise. She hired a firm to advise them. And again, these are to our knowledge, all unrestricted grants that she's making. This is the time to step back and build a plan, build a development plan, you know, restaff or retool my entire development department. And we often get hired to help do that. So, so, I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, but it's sort of like you get this windfall and then the work starts in a way, (laughs) you know? Well, you know, every nonprofit is driven by the money they can raise by having a relationship with a great donor. So that's a struggle. I mean, it's a real, it's really hard work. I've worked for more profits than nonprofits. I, I think the nonprofit business is tougher to manage and to work through, particularly the fundraising parts. So that's why we chose to specialize in that because it's tough to do. But you know, when you're successful, wow. And then with a, when a, you know, a landfall or what would you say, a, a, a unexpected major gift that double side, doubles the size of the organization overnight comes yeah. to us that, wow, you know, that's a moment to really step back and think carefully. You've hinted at this a bit, but how do you think this new way of giving, moving away from foundations and towards this grant giving behavior from billionaires, how do you think it is paving the way for the future? What do you see into the next 10 years? I see a lot more wealth creation happen. Now we're in a moment, you know, where the markets are not strong at this moment, but it's for good reason, inflation, you know, all the things we're struggling with uh, globally, really. But that too will pass. And the, the amount of wealth, either you may view that as a fair and just thing or completely not, a completely unjust, you know, unjust and injustice. But happily, you know, those who have a lot of wealth are deciding to spread the wealth. And, you know, charity ends up being the vehicle many times for that to happen, which is terrific. So maybe this continues in a bigger way. Uh, you know, maybe people start to see these results like of Mackenzie Scott you know, windfalls and they decide, you know what, I'm going to follow that path and I'm going to start giving more money away today. I, I really believe the nonprofit industry is a very reliable and fairly efficient deliverer of services, much more so than the government sector, I would say, much more so than the private space or the public space. Uh, that could be debated, of course, but, you know, we work intimately with a lot of charitable organizations. And frankly, that's what I think excites us about this business is I've been doing it for 30 years and I've seen it go from a very staid, boring business that has been on the same model stream for a long time to really radical change, particularly in the last, you know, three or five years. How about you, CJ? Two things. You're going to see the increase of philanthropic dollars uh, that will go unrestricted. And I think that uh, particularly over the past few years um, with the racial equity crisis, along with um, these billionaires kind of paving the way for unrestricted as well, um, I think unrestricted has become a much more uh, mainstream way to give. I mean, if you you think about it, like who knows more about your programs, the executive director or a donor? Well, your executive director does allow your executive director to allocate the the revenue as they see fit. Um, so I think we're starting to see more donors kind of follow suit, and I think that will continue to go along. I also think that there's a lot of donors that are looking to invest in scalable 
type of nonprofits and organizations that have a solution that could apply across the globe. <clears throat> That's why you're seeing a lot of these cohorts, the Big Bang Philanthropy, your co-impact, your lever for change, audacious project, all of these folks are looking for scalable solutions and so making big bets and and which which organization is going to be able to do it. And I think that's going to be um, a way of investing going forward that a lot of donors are going to be attracted to. I mean, you, these tech billionaires are all looking for the scalable next thing, right? It's the same thing for philanthropy. Everyone's looking for the next Uber. Everyone's looking for the next person or the next organization that's going to change the world. Uh, and I think a lot of philanthropists are following suit. So I think those are two that are probably going to continue to change going forward. You know, at Org Group, we talk a lot about entrepreneurship, innovation, disruption, scalability, you know, all the things that you do. You, it sounds like a for-profit enterprise, right? Well, that's where I think, you know, the shift has already taken place with the nonprofit community. And you have a much more venture capitalist approach or social venture capital approach uh, to charity now than has ever been the case. And that's exciting. And I, it might, yeah. that might be the reason why big money's following it. I don't know. I'm not sure. But it is exciting and it is changing rapidly. CJ mentioned crypto. You know, we've been teaching a lot about crypto just because it's uncertain as to how big a factor that's going to be. But, you know, a lot of folks made a lot of money in crypto and they, you know, giving it charitably. The tax collectors are following them and, you know, trying to get their big hunk. So, you know, giving some away is maybe a better strategy for some. Uh, so as a charity, you better be familiar and conversant in crypto enough to be able to open up an account and receive crypto when it comes your way. Have you seen any mega gifts through crypto yet? There's this organization called The Giving Block, and they have probably about 100 or so or more different nonprofits set up with them. And a lot of them have been receiving larger gifts. That's going to continue to change because as people start to move over to cryptocurrency versus giving in USD or whatever the heck it may be, you're just going to see people using that functionality, that way of transferring money more. They probably would have still given that mega gift to an organization, but instead of doing it via USD, they will do it via BTC. That's really the change. They're not changing their interest areas. They're still interested in you know, environmental or whatever it may be. They're just changing the way that they're the currency or the type of asset that they are giving. You know, maybe it's not stock anymore. It's it's BTC. It's just a different uh, different function. Now you said something before, CJ. You said who knows what the organization needs better than the executive director. And in a lot of ways, I agree with you. I think there was a period of time where we were thinking that this new generation of philanthropists was really going to be looking for accountability, wanting to understand the nuts and bolts and the impact of their gift. And I think in a way that maybe wasn't predicted, we're seeing movement away from that. What do you think is the intersection between trusting the organization, but also having the accountability? You know, where's, where's the balance there? A lot of trust. Trust-based philanthropy is definitely on the rise. And I think generally people are becoming more trustworthy of these organizations, especially as they give a proven track record and have great metrics and reportability. One of the things about crypto, cryptocurrency is, is it uh, shows accountability of where their money is going. One thing some organizations are doing is using blockchain technology to follow the dollar. I give $1 to one organization and I can see that it goes from this bank account to XYZ country, wherever the programs are, to XYZ farmer or whatever it is. So you have the accountability and you can watch it. But generally, though, I, I think the world is becoming more trust-based. And that's definitely where the philanthropy wants to be. And we hope will continue to be. 
you you asked a question just a minute ago about where do you think all this is going, you know, and is it going to continue on an exponential path of change? One of the big set change sets right now is the ESG, you know, environment, yes, social and governance. And that is huge in the for-profit investing space. I mean, it estimates are that about a third of the investable money is guided by ESG principles, which is an enormous statement. Um, you know, BlackRock considers it one of the highest priorities. The question that we ask is, is that equally, is that going to be equally powerful for the nonprofit space? One could imagine that the donors, i.e. the investors in a nonprofit might, maybe should be just as concerned about ESG as the way a nonprofit is run and the way in which dollars are spent and so forth as they would be in their for-profit assets. But it hasn't really happened yet. I mean, it's interesting. We went out and did a, a survey among some of the largest nonprofits and they're like, some of them said, ESG, what's that? that was no way. Just, yes, yes. That was just the last three months. Whoa. So, yeah, I'm telling you, that is, the, that is the case. But of course, there are a lot of them that are very sophisticated very, and understand that. But it hasn't really become a major factor yet in the nonprofit space. I think I could predict that it will. And I think people should really uh, understand what it is and be applying those principles to the way in which your businesses are run and so forth. I mean, surely DEI as being maybe housed in the social component is front and center, no doubt. But well, I think we've seen it a little bit with people with endowments being divested and things like that. Correct. But maybe that's just the beginning. But that's driven by the investor side of that. Right. It's, you know, you, when you're an endowment, you select a manager and you give it, maybe it's BlackRock or you know, whomever, and they're responsible for picking those assets and using ESG as a filter. So that's, you're right, it happens there. But I'm saying more in the way a nonprofit is run or the way in which they raise money from donors. You know, mm -hmm. as a donor say, well, you're not as ESG compliant as I want you to be, my donation's going elsewhere. I don't think that's really happening yet. It, this has been such a great conversation. Are there any final things that you think our listeners should keep top of mind in the world of mega gifts, crypto, ESG, and the future of philanthropy? You know, just small subjects here. <laughs> yeah, we could spend an hour on each. I would say that on all these topics, there are articles and webinars that are that, that live on our website that go into detail of all of these uh, spaces. And I, I think it's a pretty good collection. We call it the Not Knowledge Center. Yeah, and Catherine, I think you're like your signature signature question was what do you know for sure yeah am i quoting that right you ready to yeah. answer that death and taxes i've done my due diligence <laughs> yeah and one thing that we've been also talking about the economy the macro economy and its effect on our micro economy which is your organization uh your fundraising and what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis uh, we're getting a lot of questions about it from our uh, the folks we work with, and even internally, as our younger employees are trying to kind of grasping what's going on out there. So, you know, the world experienced a tremendous inflow of cash, probably mostly funded by our government, and the growth of our of organizations as it you know once took a pause during COVID and then, and then all of a sudden just ran to recovery. Um, you know what's what's happening now is the government is um, increasing interest rates. Uh, they're about to sell all the bonds and things that they bought uh, over the past two years is going to inflow a bunch of treasuries into the market. 
um, you know, China's kind of putting their economy back on lockdown and uh, a whole variety of other kind of macroeconomic issues. Obviously, the world war in Ukraine has led to tons of just energy price increases and just horrible things around the globe. All of those have contributed to a decline in economic productivity. GDP was down by like a 1.4% last, last quarter and probably will continue to be for the next quarter or two. Uh, and you've seen all the markets just get slammed in the process. You've seen all your growth stocks, your large tech, tech stocks get absolutely just clobbered, you know, down 80, 90% for certain um, growth firms. And then people move their money to real tried and true dividend type stocks. What that, what is that macro type conversation have to do with you micro our own individual organizations and our day-to-day fundraising? I mean, I found that while most owners aren't as aggressive as they probably were last year or two, folks are still giving um, and are happy to and you know are, are very much uh, continuing in that process. I just think people are a little bit not as aggressive as they used to be. You know, if you look at year end, you know, planning for your taxes, you probably don't have as many gains to, to offset uh, this year. And or in terms of mega gifts, um, you know, some donors aren't as eager to give as much as they probably gave the year before or something like that. So we just uh, advise our clients to keep that in mind when going and sitting down with a donor and being sensitive about what they're what they're going through and what uh, financial um, indications or financial conditions they're experiencing on their end. And that just starts with asking them questions, asking them about what they're up to, what they're thinking, how they are viewing all this, and, and kind of getting in their heads to give you guidance on what you should be asking for at the end of the day. We hope that um, it doesn't go on forever and things get recovered and, you know, the war in Ukraine is resolved and all these issues uh, kind of fade away. But, but you know, who, who knows? I can't tell the future. But I know for sure that we're being a little bit more cautious and a little bit more sensitive when meeting with donors and, and uh, major gift prospects. Catherine, one thing I would advise, not a re- an answer to your question, but I just wrote an article and it has to do with this topic of you will one day be sitting in the office of a mega donor. And that doesn't have to be a billionaire, but, you know, a really wealthy person who manages. Assets. I just met with one this morning at 9 a.m. actually. Yeah, they're all around. It's amazing. But, you know, my point in the article is you want to be somewhat conversant in what CJ just rattled off as, you know, <laughs> going on with the economy and yeah. going the stock market and, you know, because that all impacts these donors. They're living it every day. I mean, we all are really, but, you know, people in the nonprofit space are not necessarily super engaged in that. They should be, though. You see behind me, I've got CNBC running just because I want to know what's going on in the market because I know my donors are all right on the edge thinking about what's going on. I think it's good advice to be very aware of what's happening in the real world, uh, i.e. the world of the Fed and the world of banking and all this stuff that impacts us so greatly. In the conversation that I had this morning, the donor was actually talking about how important it is to invest in infrastructure right now as real estate only rises. And I thought that was such an interesting perspective as a business person. That's not the way I look. I'm like, no, don't spend endowment. We have to build endowment. And he was saying, no, it's a good thing. It's it's okay. And I thought that was so interesting to get a glimpse into his perspective. It's yeah, so such a shift in keep your overhead low. You know, that was the the call all the time. And now it's like, forget that it, that 25% overhead barrier. You know, you should be investing in back office and tech and 
you know, that we have to build modern businesses, you know, and charity is no exception for sure. Here's a good story. I remember coming out of Goldman Sachs, investment banker. I had one of those shoe phones. I still have it right over here. Wait, I want to see it. The original original Motorola shoe phone. Oh my gosh. Look at that. You're going to have to send me a picture of that. Absolutely. But, you know, I walked around with this. Guess how much this cost uh, back in the day? This is the first first portable phone. $3,000. And Goldman (laughs) paid for half and I paid for half. My point is, I brought this thing down to the charity in DC that I started to work with. And they thought I was a freak. How could you be spending money, you know, on a cell phone? You know, how could you be flying on airplanes? Oh my God, that was super prevalent because it was all foundation, foundation driven in this old state world. I mean, that just gives you, that's a 30 year perspective. You could give either of you could give perspective in the last decade. Yeah. It's crazy how things have changed. Well, CJ told us what he knows for sure. What do you know for sure, Steve? The themes we've been talking about, which is change. I would say the only constant is change. Mm-hmm. So we know things are going to continue to morph and change. And I will predict that for the nonprofit industry, that is a very, very good thing. And that means I think we all need to be quite aggressive in the way that we're staying current with the the developments in the world and knowledgeable of what's happening all around us uh, that impacts everything charitable. So, you know, things are going to keep changing. So stay current. Well, thank you both so much. It was wonderful to have you. Thanks so much. Catherine, thank you for having us today and uh, allowing us to chat a little bit. We really appreciate what you do. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to hear more from the OR Group, check out the Knowledge Center on their website. I have the link in the show notes for you to make the connection. Have a great week, and please don't hesitate to be in touch. I like to hear how these conversations impact your work and what other topics might be of interest to you. See you next week.